There's an image from that David Attenborough climate change documentary that I simply can't get out of my head. It's that piece of footage showing an orangutan rushing towards the bulldozer that's ripping apart its home. And the orangutan, as I remember it, is desperately waving its arms, even raising a fist, doing everything it can to stop that machine in its tracks. It's like a metaphor for where we're at at this moment in time. I'm Verity Sharp, and my empathy for animals is so strong. Their suffering is uh, one of those subjects that I simply can't go near. I just can't bear to see it. But what I'm fast learning, now that we're in the grip of an environmental breakdown, is that this isn't all about me. It's now my moral duty to face those fears, feel those huge emotions, and channel them through outrage into action. I can't look away, I have to speak up, especially for the voiceless. So I'm thankful that there are people like Sally Weintraub in the world who are holding up a lantern to this emotive subject of animal suffering um, that's being generated by the climate breakdown. Sally is a psychoanalyst and founder member of the Climate Psychology Alliance and here she's in conversation with Caroline Hickman. Hello, Sally. Thank you for meeting with me to talk today. I think it's going to be a a challenging conversation, but also a deeply important one and timely. Where would you like to start? I think the the subject, really, uh, that we're going to focus on is what's happening to the animals. Yeah. Um, and, you know, very large scale, we, we have this thing called the sixth extinction, mm. uh, which is horrible and too big to think about. Mm. And it also uh, goes right down to the small scale when we see what's happening in Australia, koala bears being burnt, and mm. now they're shooting the camels. I'm afraid uh, there's not enough water for the camels and the people, so they're shooting the camels. And... Mm. You know, uh, it it it. Uh, so, what's happening? What is what does this mean? The sixth extinction, and um, and what are our feelings about this? Mm. Uh, very complicated. The other thing I'd like us to be able to get onto is children and animals, mm. and um, actual children, and and also the child within us all and mm. animals. But but um, you'd invited me to start, and I, I wanted to say my sort of situating uh, frame for looking at this extinction is um, that I think that we are at the moment emerging from the climate bubble. Mm. And what I mean by that is that we've been... It's very clear that we've been uh, largely driven by culture in our era, I'm talking about the last 40-odd years, mm. uh, we've had a culture that has protected us from knowing the true costs of our way of living. Right. Um, it's very actively done that. I mean, it's something that I call the culture of uncare. Yeah. Uh, the hyphen there, it's got a hyphen in it because it's, it's how to separate us from um, our ordinary caring about the environment and about the way we're living and so on. Um, mm. So we've been in a bubble and uh, just like the the financial bubble that we were in, in two, we burst in 2008 where um, we were, people were in a state of denial uh, about uh, the financial markets and um, the subprime mortgage uh, crisis and so on, uh, when uh, we've actually, the much bigger bubble has been the bubble of denial about climate change, environmental degradation, and what's been happening to the animals. Mm. So the thing is, when you emerge from a bubble, which is a, a socially constructed defence system, which draws everybody in, it's what made it impossible to talk about climate change without feeling like a pariah in our social groups. Well, many of us will recognise this. Right. Um, a sign of the bubble breaking is that people are talking about it now. Uh, much, much more. So many now. So many now, and which is very good because we need to support each other. Mm. But when you, when you, when you're in a bubble. Mm. You don't see the size of the problem yeah. and you are emotionally screened from it and that is held in the group and mm -hmm. by the group. 
So when you, it's called a, 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 psych, a psychoanalytic concept is a, um, a psychic retreat. Okay. It's like a collective psychic retreat from the real picture. Of course, reality is intervening. Mm. All bubbles burst. They mm. have to because they're based on fraud mm. and as if accounting. Is it like reality continually tries to burst the bubble? Yes. And we continually get stronger at looking away or burying our heads deeper in the sand until the point comes where we can no longer do that? Absolutely, absolutely. That's a a very Mm. good way of putting it. And that's where we are now. Mm. And unfortunately, um, reality gets pretty bad before that starts to happen when bubbles burst. It's got pretty bad, hasn't it? It's got pretty bad, so... um, but you put it very well. So here we are, mm. the bubble's bursting, and if we want to bring sort of psychosocial ideas to bear on this, mm. there's some things that we know uh, about people in a state of when they emerge from a retreat. Yeah, It's very difficult to emerge from a retreat because mm-hmm. you're liable to be flooded with very difficult feelings all of a sudden, and you don't have that protection Right. The, the denial of the, the, the groups been operating to help you keep it at bay. Right. So in relation to animals, I'm very, very struck at the moment by um, a situation where in my dealings with people and talking to people about what's happening with the animals, either I meet a complete wall where it's as if I've said something that's unsayable And almost immediately, the subject will be closed down. Mm. I noticed this when I raised the subject of the camels the other day. Mm. I was so distressed about shooting all these camels that I actually lit a candle for them and sat in the dark. It's devastating, It's devastating. I'm shouting at the radio at the moment because they keep saying there are X number of deaths and they only name the number of human deaths. Exactly. And much as the human deaths are tragic and desperately awful so I wouldn't want to take away from those I can't help myself it's like it's over a billion deaths and I just I just want them to say that exactly in the news reporting exactly and they never do and I think the problem is you know if we look at this uh it's it's going back to the idea of emerging from a retreat Mm. we're dealing with uh, a phenomenon where People are keeping it at bay because it's too awful and they they don't want to be assaulted by all this because how do you process such a dreadful thing? Uh, Okay, on the one hand, but but on the other hand, uh, there are plenty of friends of mine who are in a terrible state of grief, like you've described, and who are talking about this. You know, and it's as if we're hovering between too little and too much. Mm. And I think this is one of the things that happens when you emerge from a retreat. You know, it's it's part of working it through and actually seeing the reality that is so grim that mm. the that the bubble has kept us um, largely media-driven, actually. Um, uh, absolutely. Do you so, think it's too unbearable? Um, yes, <laughs> I do. I do. Um, That's the word that I always come to when I think about it. It just, I don't know how to bear it. And I know how to bear other griefs and rage and despair, mm-hmm. but I, I don't really know how to bear this. And you're specifically talking about the animals? Yes. 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 Yeah. That, for me, feels absolutely unbearable. Yeah. You know, I was talking to a friend... Um, it's a Skype call to America, mm. good friend um, who's very involved with climate issues and environmental issues. And this was when uh, they were shooting kangaroos not long mm. ago, before the bushfires, because um, they don't know what to do with them. They're dying of thirst. And, of course, it's all going on in Africa as well. And we sat there <laughs> across the Atlantic in complete silence. And then one of us, I forget, just said, you know, I just feel such shame. Mm. I feel ashamed to be a human being that we're doing this, that it's come to this, you know. Mm. Um, and we were just sort of sat with our shame. So I think that's one of the feelings that emerges. I keep imagining what it must be like for them because there's nowhere for them to go and there's no escape. You know, you're talking about retreat as 
a place of defence and a place of safety, but there seems to be no places of safety mm. or retreat for the animals. I was mm. looking at these pictures of all these kangaroos that have moved into the towns mm. and they're sitting on suburban lawns mm. because their wild spaces can no longer be inhabited safely. Mm. And I was looking at those terrible pictures and I have to not look every day mm. or all day mm. but those pictures of where the animals had tried to break through the fence to get away from the fire and they couldn't get through the fence and I was just enraged and grief stricken by the fact that humankind has fenced off the wilderness and the outback and now you know we've created conditions which have created you know these fires and you know we're slaughtering Mm. animals in the process but we fence them in to these terrible conditions i you were angry earlier sally yes and i i felt really relieved actually to hear your anger because it felt like a good counterbalance to my feelings of despair well yes i mean before we started recording ourselves um we were thinking about the the situation in australia mm. And what made me angry was, I think it's all so culturally framed as well. Right. That uh, what about the, the fires in Indonesia? Right. Uh, which were devastating. Mm. Uh, I remember George Monbiot writing about them mm. in The Guardian and saying, you know, this is, this is really apocalyptic what's going on. Right. People couldn't breathe. There were there were states of emergency. Mm. The animals were burning in the forests, you know. And uh, did we hear about it? No, mm. not really. And so when mm. it's Australia mm. and it's koala bears, mm. um, we're much more engaged. And I think, I think what makes me angry is that some lives count for more than other lives. Right. Uh, some human lives count for more other than you know than than others. Mm. Um, uh, if people are brown skinned and far away, we don't seem mm. to care about it as much. Um, that that makes me angry. Yeah, and also uh, animal lives are clearly counting for not very much at all, mm. which is your point, I think. Mm. Um, I mean, the other thing I've been thinking recently is that I've been caught up in this denial mm. in the sense that why did we not think over the last 40 years what was happening mm -hmm. it's not just that animals are, are, are being burnt in fires in australia now and we can expect more of this it's that we, we've actually entered into a mass extinction in other words the dying has already happened mm. And, the, and you bring in the loss of habitat. Mm. That's already happened. It's been encroaching, encroaching, encroaching. And we haven't been talking about it. Mm. And this is what happens inside a bubble. Mm. You st somehow you can't use your ordinary capacity to think and draw conclusions and add, you know. Um, so it's like we've been asleep yeah. and we're waking up yeah. in the most terrible way. Yeah. Because we're waking up to, I mean, we've had news reports now for the last two or three years gaining greater prominence. There was biodiversity extinction report last year. There's been the reports about the loss of insects, yeah. which people haven't particularly responded to, except particularly around bees. I think people like bees, don't they? So they relate to that, but not moths or other animals. So even within the animal species, some count for more than others. We'll save bees and we grieve polar bears or koala bears, but we maybe ignore the loss of others. Well, I think you're pointing to our very strange, distorted relationship with animals. Right. Um, mm. And how much we project onto them right. and into them mm. and uh, how we really don't see them. Do you As, think that's been partly because we've been in the bubble? I'm not sure. It's a big question. Okay. Uh, there are probably a lot of factors. Mm. Um, we live further away from wild and uh, farm animals now than we ever did. That, that must influence things. Mm -hmm. I think there's been a 
tremendous commercialization and cutification of animals right. uh, in, by the advertising industry and mm. so on, the entertainment industry, that, that must shape how people see animals. Um, did you have a thought about that? I think I might be trying to think that in order to reduce my feelings of shame because I'm somebody that likes to think that I've all my life had a relatively good relationship with animals in the non-human natural world. So I'm trying to make sense of the additional shame and grief that I'm feeling. And I'm listening to you saying, we've been in denial. We're waking up at another level. And I'm just trying to make sense of, I thought I was one of the relatively good ones, you know. And I'm aware of that kind of split in myself where I'm kind of wanting to align myself with, but I'm not responsible for this. It's not my fault. You know, what could I do? So I know I'm rambling a bit, but it's because, no, no. you know, it's so difficult to feel maybe that shame and that guilt and that culpability. I think you're raising something really important and I identify, because, uh, mm. you know, I, I like to see myself as one of the good ones mm. too, you know, and uh, but I've been thinking... I've been thinking about my own personal history in all this, you know, right. and maybe maybe can I bring that in mm, a little bit? Because please do. Well, I I have a sense that when I was a child, yeah, I was more in touch with what was going on with animals. Yeah, um, and I remember a very powerful experience. I come from South Africa originally, and when I was about seven, yeah, we went to the zoo. Mm. And I saw, well, like it was, it, it was like a huge, I imagine it was a gorilla, but maybe it was a smaller <laughs> ape than that, I don't know. Uh, this being in a cage, and uh, we looked at each other. Mm. And I felt ashamed then, I felt deeply ashamed. Because I thought, why are you in a cage? This is terrible, why have we done this to you? Mm. And uh, it was a very clear moment. So mm. I was with adults and I said to them, this is terrible. Mm. Why are we locking up animals? And the answer that I was given was, um, well, it is very sad, but you know, this is the only way that we can get to see them. And I thought, um, that's corrupt. Mm. And I, it was like, a really important moment when I saw the adult world of corrupted thinking because mm. to me I didn't buy it mm. I just didn't I thought that's a cover story mm -hmm. but that I could also see and, and it, it sort of changed my relationship with adults because I could see that they were caught up with anyway I had a clarity then that I then lost as I got older interestingly uh, and I wonder if this is just me or whether because I now I have grandchildren I've noticed the same thing happening in my grandchildren. They yeah. have a clarity round about the age between five and seven. Yeah. They're very clear about animals, you know. Yeah. And then something seems to happen and they become drawn into something much more human culture. Yeah. So just Do you one, think it almost gets sort of... Do you think you can learn not to show that side of yourself and then... My, my thinking is we start to forget because we're no longer not so alive to that relationship with the other with the animals because we learn to hide it because we'll get laughed at or we'll get shamed or we get told we're stupid or we have to grow out of that way of thinking i learned to hide it you recognize what i'm talking oh, about yeah yeah, absolutely. yeah 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 absolutely when i was a little girl at the bottom of the garden there was two trees an oak tree and an ash tree and I used to talk to them and call them my parents. Oh, gosh, how lovely. And the oak tree was oh, my dad and the ash tree was my mum. And you were so right. <laughs> well, and yeah. when, obviously when I wasn't getting along with the human parents indoors, I would just go and talk to the tree parents. Mm. And they were my archetypal elemental parents. And they always understood me. And I always understood them. And they were always there for me. Mm. But what I did, I noticed, was I continued to do that throughout my whole life. And there's an oak tree and an ash tree in the woods where I walk my dog now that I go and talk to as mm. my parents and have been doing for the last 10 years. But I don't tell people about it. That's right. Although I'm telling you right now. Because, well, I actually, I have started to 
tell people this over the last year or two because suddenly for me it was quite important to sort of not be ashamed of that Mm. and to make that part of everyday ordinary life and for me that was about trying to shift that relationship with the natural world back into the centre of what I do and make it visible again. I think this is so important and I think it's actually a form of resisting our culture Mm. and trying to repair ourselves Mm. You know, um, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Mm. Um, I love the idea of the repair. Do you want to, can you say a little bit more about how we might repair ourselves in this way? Well, the most, the most, with animals, the most sort of extreme and shameful example that I can give Mm. is... um, of a state of unrepair right. is, you know, I can remember in my 20s, 30s, I'm 71 now, mm. you know, so we're going back, uh, um, thinking about ivory mm. and quite able to look at um, ivory and appreciate its beauty and the carving and so on in a state of complete dissociation Mm. from where it came from and from elephants Mm. um so what is that state of mind where Mm. it's it's a slightly um it's a very cut off state of mind now we all split like that's splitting we all split and we all we all um divide our minds and there are parts of us that you know come into conflict Mm. But part of my repair has been um, undoing the potential for that in myself mm-hmm. so that it would be inconceivable now to, um, to think of an elephant like that. I mean, when I think of elephants nowadays, I'm, I want to cry. And actually, when I first saw um, uh, a wild ele- an elephant in the wild... Mm. That's exactly what I did. It was surrounded by white butterflies, yeah. and I just wept. I just—it was—I <laughs> was so moved. Now, what do we do when um, when the dominant part of us? Uh, we can all dissociate, but when the dominant part of us takes over, so we just consistently push our more relating side off to the shadows. Mm. You know, now I recognise that in myself. And uh, I think it's very, very culturally driven. Mm. How, do we, how do we repair the culture that will support us in caring about animals? And I also believe that when we don't care about animals, we don't care about ourselves, mm. not really, because we forget that we're animals. I think, I think repair is like uh, re-embedding ourselves. It's, it's making links, but it's also re-embedding ourselves in our bodies, um, in our landscapes, in who we share those landscapes with. Um, and so that's part of repair. And also, I think we need to turn to cultures that have not been so fractured, right. uh, you know, which, which are in a better state of repair than our cultures. I agree with you. I, I, I think it's about learning from their wisdom because they haven't got that disconnect they haven't split themselves from the other Mm. i was thinking about this um story that i like to use about who speaks for the wolf and that basically a a native american uh, tribe need to move to a new land because they need more space but when they move there they realize there are wolves already living there and they then have to think about what to do about this problem And they think, well, we could drive the wolves away or kill the wolves. I I was thinking about this when you were talking about the shooting of the camels over the water. Mm. And then they thought, well, we don't want to be those kind of people because if we do that, what sort of people does that make us? So they moved back. They moved away and left the land for the wolves that the wolves were living in. Even though these people themselves, because they were... This is about the growth and expansion. They needed more space. They said, well, we're going to have to go and find another space. So they left. And the key learning for them was that they should not make decisions about the future of the tribe without somebody in the tribe speaking on behalf of the wolf. 
It's wonderful. Yeah. And so, yeah. so now, then they move to this sort of way of decision making. It's a little bit like Joanna Macy's work, mm. where they asked, who speaks for the wolf here? Who speaks for the bison, the buffalo? Who speaks for the earth? Who speaks for the rivers? Who speaks for the air? So each of those were represented in the decision making. So they would not make a decision in the future. And that was the learning that the wolf had to be represented. I was speaking to somebody the other day who said to me that they were interviewing lots of people about this this piece of research. And, and I said to her, I said, listen, I said, your research will have a, a potential gap in it unless you interview a wolf and unless you interview a tree. And I do hope you're going to try and do that. And I was sort of slightly challenging her. But she actually loved the idea and said, well, you're absolutely right. She said, and I don't know how to do that. And maybe that's what we're stuck with, is that we've forgotten not just the relationship with the animal, but also how to have that relationship with them, to listen to them and to listen to their wisdom and listen to the wisdom of uh, groups that have not lost this interconnection and have learnt how to maintain that while still developing you know, I don't think development or growth has to stop completely, but maybe it has to take place in partnership, in relationship with the other. I, I agree about uh, uh, we, we're not we're not trying to go back uh, mm. to something. Uh, we're trying to develop and develop ourselves as well. Mm. And one of the things I was thinking as you were describing that um, mm. is that actually, when you really think about it. No one can speak for the wolf. Mm. And uh, I think this is really important, actually, because what what we're saying is that um, the wolf is the other, mm. uh, is wild, mm. uh, the, the one that we cannot really understand. Mm. And if we don't factor that in, mm. um, I think we just, our own omniscience, mm-hmm. the idea that we understand everything, mm. um, just rises and rises. And if you take it quite far down the line, I've got really interested in this idea of wild animals, mm. because I think it comes full circle. Uh, in, in my experience, it's like um, uh, if you can't really get it, that the material world and the creatures in it are too big for us to understand. Right. You're not going to get it that you'll never really understand yourself either. You'll never understand the wild in yourself. I think, I think uh, what humans need to learn about is limits. Limits to understanding, limits to expansion, mm. uh, limits to self-idealisation, um, you know, uh, limits to greed... But, but especially limits to understanding, because there's something wonderful. I don't know if you've ever looked into the eyes of a wild animal mm, mm, and mm. you see what you don't understand mm. and what you can't bridge. Mm. And there's something that... And, and they look back too. Oh, yeah. It's a mutual thing, you oh, know. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was very um, taken with one of my granddaughters when she was six. Right. She suddenly announced to me um, that she wanted, she was now going to speak a certain language because she'd noticed that there was no word in the language that made animals and humans the same. So. Um, wonderful. It's wonderful. Mm. And if, uh, yeah, so she, she wanted to have um, persons. Mm. So you, you would have a dog person. A human person, an ant person. This is mm. all completely thought out by her. And interestingly, uh, the anthropo- uh, the Brazilian anthropologist uh, Viveiros de Castro mm. uh, describes that as the foundational principle for Amerindian uh, Amer- Amerindian culture. Right. Uh, that that all animals are persons. Okay. So mm. she, she, there was no difference in the way she was thinking. And she was kind of, she hadn't been taken over by culture. I mean, when she was older, she was playing with slime and, you know, Mm. (laughs) fashion and completely uninterested in animals. But um, there's something about um, a person is also a being that you don't really understand. Mm. 
it's got a wildness to it and a freedom to it mm. and and I think we're in such danger of we can't stand that I think as human beings mm. we, we love to control and exploit and project and you know anyway that there's that strand of thinking no um, I mean I think this is really important you're you're making me think about the vulnerability that we feel when we encounter that wildness in ourselves and you're making me think about how we cage ourselves and imprison ourselves in zoos and I, I I'm still curious and I about you know how we lose this Sally what happens to us what's the purpose of losing this um does somebody make us lose this awareness this connection do others try to stop us relating this way or do we just does it happen naturally is it something we need to come back to in later life because we miss that connection we realize the price we're paying the cost of not having it you know i was very struck by you saying that you never forgot your relationship with animals mm. you just became silent about it I did, yeah. because i i'm thinking that you know that the the climate bubble has burst people are talking about the climate emergency mm. now but i don't think the animal bubble has burst and i think you know uh. i think it's beginning to burst but it, it is bursting but i still think people are ashamed to really talk about um what they feel about animals right um, I think uh, we're in a culture where it's not yet really okay. Mm. Maybe we're leaving out the whole subject of pets and uh, eating meat and all of this too because we have very complicated relationships with animals. Well, yes, absolutely. You know, um, where would it all end if we actually took animals seriously as fellow, fellow sentient beings mm. on the earth? Where, mm. where would this thinking end, you know? Mm. Um, well, we would not be able to continue to exploit them for our pleasure in yeah. zoos yeah. Uh, for our consumption. We would not be able to continue that exploitative uh, relationship. We, we have to split them off in order to use them in the way that we do and shut ourselves away from their suffering. Well, I, I don't really know what I think about that. Um, I've become vegan for environmental reasons. Mm. Uh, I was a meat eater, mm. uh, gradually less and less. I think the whole issue of eating meat's got become very complicated because of the way we're treating animals. Right. Um, it's become abominably cruel and hidden away as, mm. as we we all know basically um, I, I'm not sure whether I I don't think I take a view that you know no animal shall be killed for meat I don't think I, I don't think I've got that far yet mm. um, I think I think there is a whole argument to be had about how animals are treated mm. at the same time it's very clear that if we're going to solve the climate crisis we have to stop eating meat mm. um, major major time but I think it's a very complicated um, and very culturally dense area you mm. know and I don't have I don't have a position on it um, but I do think that um, I, I notice on listening to the radio mm. Um, the level of casual cruelty and jokiness about animals I find sickening, mm. actually. I can't think of an example, but it's just, it's okay to to make tacky jokes that mm. involve cruelty, little bits of cruelty to animals. Mm. Radio mm. 4, if you listen out for it, you'll hear it a lot, and mm. everybody laughs. Um, listen out for that kind of strand of things, and... Um, there's a great deal of cruelty uh, around in the culture, I think, mm -hmm. towards animals. I'm curious about that. I'm wondering if it's because we're somehow... Like, let me try and go a different way around this. Do you think we're somehow envious of them? That they have a freedom and that we don't have and that we cannot fully control them? That they mm. embody this wildness, this otherness, that we, we cannot completely control? You know, they're not machines. Um, I'm thinking about this this human desire to control and manage mm. and everything. And I'm thinking about the cruelty and the, the casual cruelty 
in the jokes and the humour towards women, for example, towards black people, towards children, you know, that it's an, an extension of that and that it's a, a form of silencing and uh, numbing and bullying that gradually erodes somebody's essence, somebody's sense of belonging to the earth. That's very interesting to to bring out the issue of control. Because mm. um, isn't that that inherent in that split around the you were talking about with pets? We've got pets and we idealise them, mm. and then we've got you know animals that we sort of breed for consumption mm. or animals that we shoot. You know that we we have to have one form of relationship or another with them. Because that puts us back in control. That's right. But what you were just saying is the is that actually the animals have their own sense of self. Yeah. Which is it, it really is about encountering the unknown, not just in them but in ourselves. And maybe that's what it happens when we look them in the eye and they look back at us. Mm. Is we realise we, we don't know ourselves at all. I think that's some of what you were just saying is was fascinating to me. Well, you wanted as well to talk about children a little bit and the fact that they've not sort of lost this. And children, of course, are leading on a lot of the youth climate strikes and have really still, I think, got this deep empathy, this Mm. deep, empathetic, compassionate connection. I look at the youth climate strikers and the Fridays for Future and, you know, they're out there campaigning, you know, for the, the future of future generations. But they're also campaigning for the planet. They're, you know, the placards and the signs they're holding up are all about save the turtles, save the polar bear, save, save the, save the animals, as well as save us. But they're being attacked so much yeah. for it. Absolutely. I mean, in a way, um, they haven't made that fundamental coming down on one side, Mm. which is um, that animals are just as important to children as humans. Mm. Mm. Um, It is culturally taboo for grown-ups to say animals are really important because the answer you might get is, what do you mean, more important than us? I know, people you know, don't immediately there's an go to that. absolute divide that yeah. you have to agree that humans are more important than animals I, I, when, every, when, when it comes to it. I, know, I agree. It, children haven't made that choice. They, they are still in a world where um, they are an animal amongst animals. Um, right. You know, and uh, I think they still inhabit that world, and it's... But what you're saying is really so important, Sally, because I was a little bit scared, right, mm. at the start when we started talking to say how angry and upset I was that, that you know, it's not being broadcast that there's one, one and a half billion deaths in Australia at the moment. Yeah. You know, because I, I was really didn't want people to kind of go, oh, she thinks that, you know, X number of human deaths are unimportant. All she's talking about is the animal deaths. And I, I, I was aware that I was scared that somebody might throw That's that right. at me. That's right. It's, right? it's, it's a very deep uh, cultural issue. And you sort of risk being ejected from the, the group if you dare to cross that line. Well, I know. But it's also a line that is a false line. Well, it's, it? it's like a, it's made into an either or. Mm. And these are all kind of ways of silencing, I think, what we carry around, a lot of people carry around with them, you know, um, deep upset about what's happening. Oh. So, what is it about staying connected with that deep upset? that is helpful to us. Because I know for myself, I want to feel that pain and grief and loss. Although it hurts, and I have to look away sometimes and then go back to it. I want that connection. I want to feel that grief. I want to feel that pain. Because it helps me feel less mad. (laughs) If I don't feel that, I feel really... Mm. Just, I don't quite know how to be at the moment, right? And we we were saying earlier before we started recording, you know, at almost every talk I'm giving at the moment, I'm starting every talk with, yes, okay, we're going to talk about X, Y, or Z, but for a few minutes at the beginning here, we're going to talk about what's happening in Australia. Because I don't know how else to do, to, mm. To, mm. to, I have to make it part of my everyday um, 
Can you help me with that? Can you what do you, what do you think of, of, of well, that? Um I'm not sure I can because you know you said it's unbearable mm. to take this in. Mm. Um but, and I think that's I right. And yet and yet well well perhaps speaking for myself, um I can only do it in little bits and pieces. Right. Um I'm aware that there this old bank of tears just here that, you know, could come out quite easily. Um I don't know how to live an ordinary normal life anymore. Right. And I think that probably is more sane. Mm. To really take in what's happening, I think we need a lot of resilience and mm. I think we need to um, talk to each other. And I'm very disturbed that, for instance, when I brought up about the camels, or oh, it could have been the kangaroos or, you know, the koala bears or the elephants in Africa or whatever, you know, it is, or the or the people in the Horn of Africa right now and their animals, whatever it is we're talking about. But particularly with the animals, um, I get a silence from people. One group of people, one group of people I know. And and I think I'm worried it's the latest form of silencing. Right. Um, why is that? Is it is it because it's so unbearable? Mm -hmm. You know, uh, René Lertzman, you know, talked about... Um, we can care too much, we can't bear it, you know. Is it because there's a, a kind of colossal indifference? Mm. I don't know the answers, but um, there is a silencing going on and a silence. Mm. I don't know the answers, but I I am very aware of how anxious I was when I, you know, said what I said mm. about the numbers mm. of deaths in Australia um, and how worried I would be that that could be misinterpreted or misconstrued um, and I know a lot of people wouldn't but some people m might do deliberately perhaps as, as a way then of silencing me and shutting out other things I'm saying you know because they don't want to hear I also wondered if it's because we are shamed into feeling childish and that somehow we're not grown up or we're not mature or that we're not sufficiently wise if we are still affected by the death of animals that it's a gr mm -hmm. somehow i think there's a message in there that it's you have to grow up and leave that world of connection with animals and loving your animals behind and we're allowed to continue to love our pets um but i, I often hear shame and embarrassment when people talk to me about the grief they feel at the loss of their pet as if it they don't you know it's like oh i shouldn't feel such grief still but they do people do they people, do people they grieve do. the loss of a loved pet roughly the same amount of time as they grieve the loss of a loved person that's true um and yet you know it can be quite hard taboo almost to talk about mm. because People can make you feel stupid mm. and not honour that. And that's heartbreaking because the loss of a pet is devastating. You know the same parts of our brains light up when we are activated um, and the same hormones are released when we stare into the eyes of our loved... They've done the research with children. So a mother stares into the eyes of her child and stares into the eyes of her dog and exactly the same parts of the brain yeah. are activated. Yeah. And oxytocin is released in yeah. both the human but also in the dog. Mm. So really? I didn't really... It, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the wow. dog That's gets, not surprising. gets no. the, the, the love hormone as well as, as the person. Mm. And so it's, it's mutual. Mm. Now, you may not get that um, oxytocin release when you stare into the eyes of that gorilla but maybe oh, I, I, maybe there I wouldn't was be surprised because I suspect that that gorilla saw a sympathy in, in my well, eyes that is what I was I, wondering I, no no that was a that was a real look between two beings I mm. even though it was so long ago I I think so so there was an understanding there was an understanding there I think so so there was an exchange mm. do you think there's something in there that is healing for us is this something 
you know, because, you know, you can frame this as a good thing to do. There's lots of research being done about, you know, the healing power of companionship and animals. And it's all been done, you know, they've, they've looked at, you know, how we recover from surgery, if we can see pictures of trees, you know. That's all been done. But for me, as much as I love all that stuff, it still treats the ne- the non-human natural world as the other yes. that we would be using in some way for our own benefit. Yes. Do you think there is a place that we can go to where we can move into this relationality, which is non-exploitative, which is of benefit to us as well as them? Do you think there's something we can do? Gosh, that's a big question. Um my source of hope is in there because mm-hmm. um, really it's part of repairing our own minds right. um, changing our culture um, you, you said something way back just now that that you were actually linking a lot of things together because you were, we, we were talking about animals and mm. you were talking about um, structures of control and then you brought in women, mm. you mm. brought in racism. Yeah. I think we're, we're talking about um, um, somehow a freeing up of this wanting to form hierarchies right. uh, which are um, controlling hierarchies. Mm. And they they dominate so many of our relationships, mm. and they even dominate our relationships with ourselves. Sure. So that you know we can't have conversations with ourselves about things that we find embarrassing that we think, mm. you know. Um, I think we need to talk this through and talk it out. You know, I'm very interested in something which is that when a mother. Um, brings a baby into the world. Yeah. I don't know what to think about this. I wonder what you think. Mm. The very, very first thing she does is she... I'm talking about westernised mothers now. She surrounds the baby with animals. Oh, yeah. Mm. Including wild animals. Yeah. Of course, toys. Mm. But, you know, what does that say? Because I think yeah. it's not just commercialism. No. It's not just culture. It's like a deep duty yeah. that I represent for you... Uh, I'm bringing you the world. Yeah. And the world is a world with animals. Now, however distorted that gets, yeah. you know, it's it's not, it's in us. Yeah. It's fascinating, isn't it? You know, and surrounded I by, find that very moving, actually. It, absolutely. You're surrounded by cuddly toys, and these are all animals. They're all animals. I mean, something awful happens to it because they get commercialised yeah. and then they're yeah. far too many of them and it gets cutified and yeah. everything. But mm. there's an impulse there. Mm. There is. Uh, to, 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 to introduce your baby mm. into the world, which mm. includes Mother Nature and mm. everything. Um, and how can we books? repair that, you know? Well, children's mm. books as well. I want to come back to that question, but... Um, children's books as well, you know, they're all they're populated by bunnies and kittens mm. and puppies mm. and you know it's how we teach children to, it's how we teach children to relate to form relationship, and we teach them about how to we teach them about how to belong in the human world, through looking at relationships with animals yes. and between different animals, and we we teach about relationality mm. first by engaging children to think about animals and what animals think and how animals relate to each other well this is where my granddaughter's point was profound Mm. because we're talking about humans and animals and she was saying there is no word Mm. for us all Mm. because Mm. we are we are animals and there's something about our animality or whatever that word would be yeah that that uh what what these are big questions that we're raising here why I think I think it's yeah. that that whole idea about remembering that I I want to come back to that point because I think that is a good place to rest with this conversation. It's back to that question about our the fact that we are animals mm. and we are you know creatures, and so we're sort of stumbling around trying to find our way through something, which we don't have the solutions to. We don't know how to fix the climate emergency and biodiversity emergency 
we need to engage with it. We need to engage with it emotionally, as well as intellectually, as well as practically. But we are a bit lost. And the animal body, the animal self within us, perhaps could be called on a little bit more right now. Well, well, I, I do agree with you that I think uh, there's a lot that we can call on and give ourselves permission mm. to call on. But I'm not sure I agree with you um, that we don't know about the fix. Mm. We need to keep oil in the ground. Mm. Uh, we've got fabulous intellectual leaders mm. who are, um, you know, uh, which are not being sufficiently reported on rewilding. On you know, we're, the, the, our creativity at the moment is sky high. It's just that our government, our leaders prefer to listen to the fossil fuel uh, lobbyists than to actually listen to the people who could help solve these problems. I think there are many, many solutions out there. So I'm, right. I'm more, you know, right. I think the problem is political. Okay. But I do think somewhere in there you were, you were raising the issue of what we don't know and, mm. and, and, and what we can give ourselves permission mm. to think. Um, I guess yeah. I, I guess I go there to try and make sense of why we don't act on those solutions. But you go to the political to, mm. to sort of answer that. Mm. And yeah. the culture. And the culture. And the culture. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think we'll change it? Um, I don't know. Um, we're right on the wire. Mm. Uh, but I'm hoping that um, we're going to get very active. Mm. And uh, one of the things about not knowing, I mean, the, the things are looking pretty grim at the moment, yeah. uh, politically, you know, in a political sense. Uh, but also, we, if we push hard enough, we don't know also about tipping points. Right. Um, positive tipping points, I'm talking about. Right. Uh, you know, when people have just had enough right. and uh, when things catch on. And, um, but I think it's going to be a very fierce struggle now. Right. But worth it. Totally. <laughs> Thank you, Sally. We'll stop there. That's Thank perfect. You. Thank you. Thank you. Sally Weintrobe and Caroline Hickman. Climate Crisis Conversations is a podcast series produced by the Climate Psychology Alliance in association with Parity Audio. Please do rate, subscribe and join us again soon for more. Listener.